Section 31 of Uther and Igrain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uther and Igrain by Warwick Deeping. Book 3, Chapter 11. How the birds sang that evening as a saffron afterglow fainted over the forest spires. And when all was still with the hush of the night, how the cry of a nightingale thrilled from a tree near the cottage. The glamour of the day had passed, and now what mockery and bitterness came with the cold, calculating face of the moon. Ygrine tossed and turned in her bed like one taken with a fever. Her brain seemed afire, her hair like so much flame about her forehead. As she lay staring with wide, wakeful eyes, the bird's song mocked her to the echo. The scent of honeysuckle and rose floated in like a sad savor of death, and the moonlight seemed to watch her without a quaver of pity. Her heart panted in the darkness. She was torn by the thousand torments of a troubled conscience, wounded to tears, yet her eyes were dry and waterless as a desert. Gorlois's face seemed to glare down at her out of the idle gloom, and she could have cried out with the fear that lay like an icy hand over her bosom. Peleus slept under the cedar tree, wrapped in an old cloak, relic of Garlet's father. How Igrine's heart wailed for the man, how she longed for the touch of his hand. God of heaven, she could not let him go again and starve her soul with the old, cursed life. His lips had touched hers. His arms had held her close. She had felt the warmth of his body and the beating of his heart. Was all this nothing? A dream? A splendid phantasm to be rent away like a crimson cloud? Was she to be Gorlice's wife and nothing more? A bitter flower growing under a gallows, Sour wine frothing in a gilded cup? God of heaven, no! What had the world done for her that she should obey its edicts and suffer for its tyrannies? Galois had cheated her of her liberty. Let him pay the price to the fates. What honor, indeed, had she to preserve for him? If he was a brute piece of lust, a tyrant, a demagogue, so much the better it would ease her conscience. She owed no fealty, no marriage vow to Gorlois. Her body was no more his than was her soul, and a dozen priests and a dozen masses might as well marry granite to fire. How could a fool in a cape and a frock, by gabbling a service, bind an irresponsible woman to a man she hated more than the foulest mud in the foulest alley? It was a stupendous piece of nonsense, to say the least of it. No God calling himself a just God could hold such a bargain holy. And then, the truth! What a stumbling block truth was on occasions! She knew Peleus's intense love of honor, the fine sensibility of his conscience, the strong thirst for the highest good that made him the victim of an ethical tyranny. If he had left her after Andredswold, because he thought her a nun, what hope now had she of holding him 
if he knew her to be a wife. And yet, for all her love, she could not bring herself to keep him wholly from the truth. For all her passion and the fire in her rebellious heart, she was not a woman who could fling reason to the winds and stifle up her conscience with a kiss. Besides, she loved Peleus to the very zenith of her soul. To have a lie understood upon her lips, to be shamed before the man's eyes, were things that scourged her in fancy even more than the thought of losing him. She trembled when she thought how he might look at her in later days if a passive lie were proven against her with open shame. But to tell him of Gorlois and the humiliation of that darkest hour of her life, could such a man as Peleus serve her longer after such a confession? He would become a king again, a stranger, a man set in high places far beyond the mere yearning of a woman's white face. And yet, it was possible that his love might prove stronger than his reason. It was possible that he might front the world and frown down the petty judgments of men. Glorious and transcendent sacrifice. She could face calumny beside him as a rock faces the froth of waves. She could look Gorlois in the eyes and know neither shame nor pity. Her mood that night was like the passage of a blown leaf, tossed up to heaven, whirled over the treetops, driven down again into the mire. Strong woman that she was, her very strength made the struggle more indecisive and more racking. She could not renounce Peleus for the great love she bore him. And yet, she could not will to play a false part by reason of this same great love. Her soul, like a wanderer in the wilds, halted and wavered between two tracks that led forward into the unknown. Garlet was sleeping in the far corner of the cottage. The girl had given up her bed to Igrine, who envied her her quiet, restful breathing as she lay and listened. In her doubt, she called and woke Garlet from her sleep, hardly knowing indeed what she desired to say to her, yet half fearful of lying alone longer in the night with her own thoughts for company. Garlet rose up and came across the room to the bigger bed. She knelt down. Two warm arms crept under the coverlet, and a soft cheek touched Igrine's. Why are you awake, Igrine? The warmth of the girl's body her quiet breathing, the sweep of her hair seemed to bring a scent of peace and human sympathy into the moonlit room. Igrine put her arms about her and drew her down to her side. Their white faces and clouding hair lay close together on the pillow. You are in trouble, Igrine? How should I be in trouble? You breathe like one in pain, and your voice is strange. Hush, Garlet. Am I not right? Peleus must not hear us talking. They were silent a while, lying in each other's arms with no sound save that of their breathing. Ekrain's misery burnt in her and cried out for sympathy. Garlet, half-wise by instinct, yearned to share a trouble which she did not wholly comprehend, 
to advise where she was partly ignorant. The girl felt a great stirring of her heart towards Igrine, but could say nothing for the moment. Having no better eloquence at command, she raised her head and kissed the other's lips. A warm, impulsive kiss that seemed as rich in sympathy as a rose in scent. Igrine's confidence woke at the touch of the girl's lips. She hungered even for this child's comfort, her simple guidance in this matter of life and love. It was easy enough to die, hard to exist as a mere spiritless Galadia, devoid of soul. Garlet. Yes, Igrine. Imagine you were married to a man you hated, and you loved Renan. Garlet raised herself in bed. And Renan loved you, and knew nothing. Yes. Would you tell Renan the truth? Garlet remained motionless, propped on her two hands and looking out of the window into the streaming moonlight. Her brown hair touched Agrine's face as she lay still and watched her. The room was very silent. Not a breeze seemed stirring. The roses athwart the window were still as though carved in wood. Garlet spoke very softly, looking up with her face white and solemn in the moonlight. I should tell Renan, she said. Why? Because I love him. Yes, go on. I should not love him rightly in God's eyes if I kept him from the truth. The coverlet rose and fell over a grain's bosom, and there was a queer twisting pain at her heart. But if you were never to see Renan again, she said. If I told him the truth? Yes, child. Garlet dared not look into Igrine's face. Her lips were twitching, and her eyes were hot with tears. I do not know, she faltered. Think, child, think. I should not tell him. In half a breath, she had contradicted herself with a little gasp. Yes, yes, I should tell him. The truth? Because I could not be happy even with him if I were acting a lie. Igrine gave a dry sob and drew Garlet down again to her side. They lay very close, almost mouth to mouth, their arms about each other's bodies. I love Peleus. Yes, yes. I will tell him the truth. Ah, Igrine, it is best. It is best. But it will kill me if I lose him. Ah, Igrine, but he will love you all the more. It was Garlet who broke into tears and hid her face in the other's bosom. Igrine's eyes were as dry as a blue sky parched with a summer sun, and her voice failed her like the slack string of a lute. The moonlight slanted down upon them both. Before dawn, they had fallen asleep in each other's arms. How many a heart trembles with the return of day, what fears rise with the first blush of light in an empty sky? The cloak of night is lifted from weary faces. The quiet balm of darkness is withdrawn from the moiling care of many a heart. To a grind, the dawn light came like a message of misery as she lay beside the sleeping garlet, 
and watch the gloom grow less and less in the little room. This dawn seemed a veritable symbol of the truth that she feared to look upon and recognize. The night seemed kinder, less implacable, less grave of face. Day, like a pale justiciary, stalked up out of the east to call her to that assize where truth and the soul meet under the eye of heaven. How different it was with Peleus under the eaves of the great cedar. He had slept little that night for mere wakeful happiness. The moon had kept carnival for him above the world. At dawn, the stars had crept back from the choir stalls into the chambers of the night. He had known no weariness, no abatement of his deep, calm joy. His heart had answered blithely to the dawn song of the birds, as though he had risen fresh from a dreamless sleep. The day to him had no look of evil. The sky was never gray. The flesh in the east recalled no flashing of torches over a funeral byre. He rose up in the glory of his clean manhood, the strong kindliness of his great love. His prayers went to heaven that morning with the lark, and the Spirit of God seemed like a wind moving softly in the green boughs above his head. Very early, before it was light, he had taken a plunge and a swim in the pool, a swinging burst through the still water that had made him revel in his great strength. He had come up from the pool like a god refreshed and had put on his red harness while the mist rose from the valley and the birds chanted in the ghostly trees. When the day was fully awake, he walked the grass path in the garden like a watchman with the scent of honeysuckle and thyme in his nostrils and a blaze of flowers at his feet. As he paced up and down with his face turned to the sky, he sang in a mellow bass a song of Guyon's, the court minstrel. When the dawn has come, my heart sighs for thee, and the gleam of thy hair, eyes deep as the night, when the summer sky arches the world. So sang Peleus as he paced the grass with his eyes wandering ever towards the doorway of the cottage. Presently, Grine came out to him and stood under the shadow of the porch. Her hair hung lustrous about a face that was white and drawn, despite a smile. Certainly, a haze of red flushed her cheeks when Peleus came up with a glory of love in his eyes, took her hands and kissed them, as though there were no such divine flesh in the whole wide world. How wonderful it was to be touched so! to have such eyes pouring out so strong a soul before her face, to know the presence of a great love, and to feel the echoing passion of it in her own heart. After the barren months of winter and the long bondage in Tintagel, it seemed an idyllic thing to be so served, so comforted. And was this very time but for an hour, a day, and no longer? Was she but to see the man's face, to feel the touch of his hands, the grand calm of his love, before losing him, perhaps for life? Her heart fluttered in her like a smitten bird. And Peleus, too, what a thrust lurked for the man, 
a blow to be given in the name of truth. How could she speak to him of Gorlois when he came and looked at her with those eyes of his? Ygrine had never felt such misery as this, even in the gloomy galleries of Tintagel. It tried her courage to the death to face Peleus's wistful gaiety and the adoration that beamed on her from his eyes. Dear heart, it is dawn. It is dawn. Peleus held her hands and waited for her lips to be turned to his. Instead, he saw her lowered lids and quivering lashes, lips that were plaintive, a face white beneath a wealth of hair. Ah, Grain, you do not look at me. Her eyes trembled up to his with a sudden, infinite luster. Peleus! Girl, girl! I have hardly slept. Nor I, Grain. I am worn out with thinking of you. Little woman, you are extravagant. You will die like a flower, even while I hold you in my bosom. Garlic came out of the cottage and was kissed by Peleus on the lips. The girl's eyes were red and heavy. She had been crying but a moment ago in the shadow of the cottage room. And she was timid and very solemn. Peleus looked at her like a big brother. Come now, little sister, he said with a rare smile. Methinks you must be in love too by your looks. Yes, Lord. Said I not so? You women take things so to heart. Yes, Lord. What a solemn face, little sister. Garlet mastered herself for a moment, then burst into tears and ran back into the cottage. Peleus colored, looked troubled, glanced at Igrine, thinking that he had hurt the girl's heart with his words. Ygrine's face startled him as if the visage of death had risen up suddenly amid the flowers. He stood mute before her, watching her starved lips, her drawn face, her eyes that stared beyond him with a kind of cold frenzy. Peleus! Peleus! It was like the wild cry of a woman over her dead love. The sound struck Peleus with a vague sense of stupendous woe of dim prophecy of evil, like the noise of autumn in the woods. Before he could gather words, Igrain had turned and run from him as in great fear, skirting the pool and holding for the black yawn of the forest aisles. Peleus started to follow her in a daze of wonder. Was the girl mad? Had love turned her brain? What was there hid in her heart that made her wing from him like a dove from a hawk? By the trees, Igrine slackened and turned breathless on the man as he came towards her through the long grass. Her eyes were dim and frightened, her lips twitching, and there was a bleak, hunted look upon her face that made her seem white and old. Peleus's blood ran cold in him like water. A vague dread sapped his manhood. He stared at Igrine and was speechless. The girl put her arm before her eyes and shook as she stood. Peleus fell on his knees with a cry and reached for her hand. Hegrine! Hegrine! She snatched her arm away and would not look at him. My God, what is this, Hegrine? Don't touch me. I am Galoris's wife. 
a vast silence seemed to fall sudden on the world. It might have been the dead of night in winter, with deep snow upon the ground and no wind stirring in the forest. Turgrine, swaying in agony with her arm over her face, the silence came like the hush that might fall on heaven before the damning of a lost soul to hell. She wondered what was in Peleus's heart and dared not look at him or meet his eyes. God in heaven, would the man never speak? Would the silence crawl on into an eternity? At last she did look and nearly fell at the wrench of it. Peleus was standing near her, looking at her with his great solemn eyes as though she had given him his death. His face seemed to have gone gray and haggard in a moment. Coloas's wife, was all he said. Egrine hung her head, shivered, and said nothing. Peleus never stirred. He seemed like so much stone, a mere pillar of granite misery. Egrine could have writhed at his feet and caught him by the knees, only to melt for a moment that white calm on his face that looked like the mask of death. A voice that was almost strange to her startled her out of her stupor of despair. How long have you been wed, Egrine? Nine months, Peleus. The man seemed to be struggling with himself as though he strove after the truth, yet could not confront it for all his strength. When he spoke, his voice was like the voice of a man winded by hard running. He appeared to urge himself forward, to goad his courage to a task that he dreaded. There was great anguish on his face as he looked into the girl's eyes. I must speak what I know, Egrine. The words seemed slow with effort. Egrine watched him in silence, full of a vague dread. Gorlois has spoken to me of his wife. Say on, Peleus. Peleus hesitated. The truth. Tell me the truth. She was almost clamorous. Peleus plunged on. Galoris told me how his wife was faithless to him, how she had fled with Brastius, the knight who had warred over her at Kerleon. I never knew her name until this hour. The words might have fallen like the strokes of a lash. Egrine stood and stared at the man, her mouth open like a black circle, her eyes expressionless for the moment, like the eyes of one smitten blind. The full meaning of the words numbed her and hindered her understanding. A babble of shame sounded in her ears. The sinister intent of the man's accusation rose gradual before her reason, like the distorted image of a dream. She felt cold to the core. A strange terror possessed her. Peleus, what have you said to me? Her voice was a mere whisper. Peleus hung his head and said never a word. His silence seemed to fling sudden fire into Igrine's eyes, and her face flamed like a sunset. It might have been Golois who stood and challenged the honor of her soul. Man, tell me what is in your heart. Her voice was shrill, even imperious. Peleus hung his head. Golois keeps poison for his wife were his words. Egrine's lips curled. A sword for Brastius. 
generous man. Peleus was watching her as a prisoner watches a judge. He had a great yearning to believe. Fear, anguish, anger were in Igrine's heart. But she showed none of the three as she stood forward and looked into the man's eyes with a steadfastness no honor could gainsay. Peleus, she said. Girl, look into my eyes. He did so without flinching. Igrine took his sword and gave it naked into his hand. Listen, Galois told you a lie. Igrine, do you believe me, Peleus? If not, strike with the sword, for I will live no longer. The man gave a sudden cry, like one who leaps over a precipice, threw the sword far away into the grass, and falling on his knees, buried his face in his hands. This is the end of Book 3, Chapter 11, recorded by Laurie Nadeau Richardson, www.laurierichardsonvo.com.